It's all part of the plan. DC Talk here on Get Into Gig. My name is Mitch, talking all things DC in the big and little screens. And the week that was in the news. Now, at the end of the podcast, which we do on each and every episode, we talk about my watch through of the Arrowverse, of the DC TV of old. But to uh, somewhat bookend this podcast, I'm going to be talking about not necessarily a piece of news, but something that way too many outlets, in my opinion, tried to make news. Talking about one of the shows that I actually won't be talking about today because it wasn't on in the given week of releases that I am talking about. But we are referring to Superman and Lois. Of course, we are about to have season four hit screens sometime in 2024. We don't have a release date yet, but that will be the show's fourth and final season. And what I'm surprised about everyone mentioning is how that decision came to be. Maybe the actual piece of news is the definitive answer as to who cancelled this show, Warner Brothers or CW? And the answer is Warner Brothers. Now, the furor that some outlets seem to be trying to start is that Warner Brothers are having this great control over all of their properties and how dare they cancel a show that was wildly popular with its fans, seemingly got a lot of critics on board, especially in those later seasons of the other Arrowverse and Beyond shows. It was doing a lot better critically and the fans were loving it. It was going from strength to strength and then all of a sudden the DCU is announced, is planned out, its first couple of release dates are mentioned and then this show, which was in some kind of limbo at the end of season three as to whether or not it was going to come back, does get a fourth season renewal but that will definitely be its last and somehow along the way people have gotten confused and surprised that Warner Brothers, that potentially, I guess, DC Studios and James Gunn and Peter Safran are the ones making the call on Superman and Lois and that, according to the reports, it's designed so that there aren't competing Supermans. There won't be audiences confused by the idea of having two separate Supermans in two separate universes and continuities. Not that much of a surprise when DC Studios co head James Gunn comes out himself and says that anyone and anything that happens in the DCU ongoing will be that version of the character across all forms of medium. So we get a David Corrin Sweat coming into the DCU as it's Superman. He will be Superman on TV. Live action or animated, David Corrin Sweat will voice the character, will appear as the character, will play Clark Kent in video games, whatever they need, he is ongoing our Superman until he's not. So the idea that people are surprised that Superman and Lois into its fourth season while all of these other CW shows are wrapping up. Flash is gone, Supergirl's gone, Arrow went years ago, Legends of Tomorrow got cancelled, Batwoman finished its run. Why the surprise that Superman and Lois was going to eventually end and do so before the DCU started? Superman Legacy won't be out until July 2025. And by then, Superman and Lois will well and truly be done. It will have been over by six months or more. I can't see even one episode of this show airing in 2025. It's only going to be 10 episodes. So once it does air, it will be over very quickly. And then Superman, as far as a live action adaptation, will be off our screens for around a year, at least, you've got to think. And for even us massive diehard fans that are watching superhero content on TV and watching the big blockbuster movies that are out to a more mainstream audience, that will be long enough for even us to have farewelled that character and to be ready to welcome in a new one. And as much as these studios need to be thinking about us hardcore fans that are watching multimedia platforms of these characters and their adaptations, they've also got to be thinking about the general audience 
audience. Those are where the big dollars are made. As much as we like to think that we take out the majority of the audience and the majority of the box office money or the ratings on TV, generally speaking, especially on a box office level for movies, the majority of money is going to come from the casual fan. But to be honest, it's actually a bit of a catch-22 trying to fix this problem and trying to announce the solution to the problem that people might not know that they have. You look over at the MCU, and I've got close friends that are into this sort of stuff, but they don't watch everything religiously. They haven't seen every second of every minute of every TV show out there on Disney+, Plus and watching all the different movies and franchises that they just don't seem to care about. And it gets to this stage where they think, oh my god, if I have to go and see the Marvels, do I really have to go and watch WandaVision? Do I really have to go and watch Miss Marvel? Do I really have to have re-watched all of the Carol Danvers movies? And some of that is a big yes. Others is not necessarily but they still feel overwhelmed with all of this, I hate to use the word, quote-unquote, content to enjoy whatever comes next. And in the end, that has definitely cost them some box office dollars by people thinking, and I'm talking about the general audience here, I have so much homework to do if I'm going to be able to enjoy this movie. The Marvels, for all of the issues around its release and the hate that it necessarily and unnecessarily got, people weren't sure whether they were going to be able to get it. And then you watch that movie in the first 10 minutes, they basically explain to you everything you could have learned in three seasons of TV and the movies that came before it. It wasn't that big of a deal. But to understand that, to get Get that satisfaction, you have to have already paid your money and be sitting in the seat to watch the movie. The catch-22 with DC is that those of us that are already in the know, we know that this stuff is separate. We know that Tyler Hecklin is different from David Corrinsweet. We know that David Corrinsweet is different to Henry Cavill. But it does make total sense that for a mainstream audience, DC are going to want to come out and say, hey, all of those movies that came out, whether they were unfairly hated on or not, it doesn't really matter. Those are completely separate. This is a brand new universe that we are starting. It's a different Batman, it's a different Superman, all these other characters that you may have come to know in that somewhat short-lived franchise of the DC EU, if we're still going to call it that. Everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be fresh now. But, and this is where the Catch-22 comes into it, for the mainstream audience to get the information that this is a new franchise, they probably have to be somewhat in the know already. If you're already in the movie, you're probably going to get the idea that this is a different canon, this is a different continuity to the DCEU, to anything on TV that you've seen. The fact that it's a new actor is probably going to be information enough to any audience member but for those that are thinking maybe this is a continuation unless they're already online reading movie news or really intently watching a lot of interviews and reading them in print they're not going to get that information anyway so the idea of having two competing supermen wouldn't really matter to them so you know what it's up to you it's up to me to get that message out to spread the word and make sure that people know that it's a new thing and we can start fresh and forget all the negativity it's still going to be around who am i talking about now, on the confusion around competing Superman or competing canon and competing franchises, this is where it starts to get a little tricky with this next movie that I want to talk about that, again, isn't necessarily news. It's barely an update, but the fact that it's being brought up again raises some good questions. You know, the Batman is one thing. The sequel to the Batman is going to come out very clearly unless James Gunn comes out the next couple of months and says, by the way, actually, Robert Pattinson's Batman is in the DCU, which could happen it's probably not but it definitely could happen 
But until then, even though we don't have a DCU Batman just yet, he's got a movie on the slate in a couple of years that still has plenty of time to change. Until then, we kind of have two competing Batman franchises, at least. I mean, the Matt Reeves one might not go past a second film, but as it stands, we have the Robert Pattinson Batman and whatever the DCU Batman will be. And Joker number two whatever that one is that we're getting at the end of the year that's a completely different story as well i mean there's barely a batman there's no batman in that franchise it's just joker i'm surprised we're getting a sequel i'd be even more surprised if we see anything past this second film that's coming out at the end of the year so by that stage we're going to have a joker franchise that will be done before the dcu starts robert patton's batman his run as batman might end before the dcu batman ever makes his debut and we might be in a situation like with Superman and Lois where we won't have competing versions of the same character on the same screen. The movie I am talking about, though, is Constantine. We've heard for a while that a Constantine 2 was happening. It was over the last 18 months, and Keanu Reeves has briefly spoken about it on the matter. And now the producer, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, has also shared his thoughts while trying desperately to promote Madam Web, which he's also involved in. But a Constantine 2 represents something a little bit tricky as well. That, to a lot of people, and I really love the movie, I don't know anything about the character beyond what we've seen on that film and the Matt Ryan iteration before he just became another the fly on the wall in the Legends cast, but Keanu's version certainly wasn't well-loved because of its um, accurate adaptation of the John Constantine from the comic books. A sequel seems to still somewhat be happening, and at this stage is considered a DC Elseworlds movie, which is going to make things a little bit more confusing. Now, they might not have any plans in the DCU to involve John Constantine for the next 15 years, maybe longer, but and I don't mean to mention the name of the show, according to the plan, it's all part of it. Everything that was going to be coming out on the DC front with a DC bloody logo on it, aside from the comics, was going to be part of the same shared continuity. Like I said before with Corin Sweat, movies, TV, animation, video games, a multimedia DC universe. But it looks like if the Constantine 2 gets made, it will be in its own separate continuity much like Joker, which is set to end, and much like the Batman, which will eventually end. We might only be at the start of it, but it will end surely a lot sooner than the DCU. Constantine probably won't be getting a number three as well, but at this stage of its development, we don't see this movie coming out for surely another couple of years. Once the DCU has begun its run and is starting to gain some momentum, we're going to have another new film come out that is a sequel to a film from 2005, not only before before the DCEU, it's before even another version of Superman and Superman Returns. Constantine came out around the same time as Batman Begins. We're going to be so far past so many other iterations of so many different characters in so many different canons and continuities to then have a sequel to it and then try and get across that it's not related to everything else that's going on. It sounds like more trouble than it's actually worth. Like I said, the general audience won't care. They're only going to care about good films. And no one surely watching a Constantine film fighting a horde of demons is going to be sitting there wondering where the future DCU Batman is or where Rachel Brosnahan's Lois Lane is. Why isn't Nicholas Holtz Lex Luthor getting a mention? Even the claims that this movie, if it does go ahead, will be a true R-rated film, at least for American audiences, going for that darker tone that will 
better benefit the the uh, the character of John Constantine. That's going to separate it from a lot of what else the DCU surely is going to be delivering to us, especially in its opening chapter phase. Still, producer Lorenzo de Bonaventura was asked about its potential to actually become a real thing, to which he said, I hope it does, because it's a great character, great in comic books, and it was a great making that first movie. It's such an alternative kind of character. Now, this is where he actually starts to weave in a little bit of his PR spin. It's what really attracted me to Madame Webb, was this singularity of the character. that The idea that she is going to become blind and that she is going to become this other thing was really attractive. So he stops talking about Constantine there, but the idea that this doesn't seem like a sure thing at the moment. I dare say there are a lot of meetings happening with a producer of all of the old films coming into James Gunn's office, coming into Peter Safran's office and trying to pitch them a sequel to a film that doesn't belong in their continuity and about why it should be made so that these guys can get paid. Personally, on a selfish level, I would absolutely watch it. I really enjoyed Constantine, that first film. I knew nothing about the character. I know that Reeves, like I said, his interpretation of it, not necessarily his fault, just what was written for the screen, wasn't exactly what the comic books had promised. But I liked the feel and the tone of the movie and the way that it sold its own version of this essentially new character to me. But do I think that it should be made and be a potentially confusing part in a series of films that are trying desperately to look like they have been part of a plan and they're trying desperately to minimize the confusion around the audiences so that they can actually move forward with something that actually connects, something that actually makes sense. No, I don't think it should be made. I think it's been too long. I think that movie was great, but I think a sequel should have come out in the next five years, seven years surely tops. I think once you have the second version of Superman since your own film came out, since that original movie, I think that's where you can call it a day. Now, speaking about new versions of characters, we can't seem to escape, and I don't know that I necessarily want to, the fan casting around Alan Richardson, Mr. Jack Reacher himself. Season two wrapped up over the last six weeks. The guy is an absolute beast. He's out there doing detective work. He is a lone wolf, yet supported by his own version of a family and is incredibly dedicated to whatever mission he puts himself on. Alan Richardson, we could do worse than having him as our new Batman, even just from an aesthetics point of view. I mean, if we're going to sit here and try and believe that a regular man with absolutely no superpowers could be in the same room as a Wonder Woman, as a Superman, and still feel like he is a physical threat to whatever bad guys are coming his way, you kind of want someone who looks like Alan Richardson. I mean, for all of the uh, hate that Ben Affleck seemed to get across his adaptation of Batman, the guy was really built. I really love Christian Bale's Batman as well, but he didn't have that hulking physique that uh, a lot of the uh, the Batman comic books, the cartoons, the video games seem to show off. Now, those are exaggerated visions of the character, but still... While we have a chance, maybe amongst all of these other pretty comic-accurate-looking castings that we've got going on, I think we could do worse than Alan Richardson. I think he would be a fine Bruce Wayne, the way that we've seen him play that sort of character. But I think you throw a mask and a cape and a costume on that guy and let him go hell for leather against a group of thugs. Yeah, I can see that, and it looks pretty awesome. And in a great move by comicbook.com, they have actually brought it to his attention. I'm sure a few other people have. This just happens to be what I think would be the best one. And Richardson joked, as huge as this rumor mill is, I feel like this part should be offered on a silver platter. Now, talking less from a selfish point of view and more about the importance, the longevity of the character, this would be an important casting. He said, I would love to play Batman, but I'm not yet Batman. I don't know what Gunn's approach is going to be, but yes, that would be great. He is one of the most iconic 
comic characters of all time. Now, this is a guy who has played Aquaman on Smallville. He was Hawk in Titans. This guy is pretty familiar with DC characters, and if he's open to playing another one, physically he looks like a great part. And he's a pretty serviceable actor as well. And to be honest, if he's willing, I'd like to see him get given a shot. One last thing, which is, again, not necessarily news, just a great quote that I saw. It was from James Gunn during the week because getting closer to the DCU and, I mean, really any adaptation that comes along, whether it is TV, whether it's movies, people worry about the accuracy to comic book adaptations. And I've been talking about it a lot in just the last 20 minutes about different versions of the characters and people have come to love them, come to hate them. And a lot of that is to do with how they are adapted from the page. And really, if any adaptation has shown us anything in the last 30, 40, 50 years, is it's that we shouldn't be married to one version of the character and again a great quote i've heard when people complain about something not being comic accurate the answer was accurate to which comic because any writer any artist that comes along is going to write is going to draw the character differently michael keaton even just amongst the get into geek crew here for many of us his batman is the definitive version of batman yet there are so many things in that film that are not comic book accurate in any way shape or form christian bale was closer in some aspects but further away in others ben affleck the same any character superman or otherwise is going to be different to what your interpretation of it is everyone has a different interpretation of it and that was james gunn's point someone asked gunn on threads about in particular the joker which you know on the comic book pages if they're going to be considered canon has went through something of a change over the last couple of years once we brought in the three jokers story and about the fact that there isn't just one Joker running around Gotham, there is actually three. But now they're trying to not necessarily course correct, but definitely change that again to better explain that maybe it's not three people, it's three different versions of the one person and comic book reasons will explain how both of those things are possible. But someone asked Gunn, do you consider the killing joke? one of the most iconic Joker stories of all time in the comics, do you also consider the killing joke Joker's actual origin? And I really liked his answer. I consider whatever I'm reading true in the moment I'm reading it. As for canon, I'm not in charge of mainstream DC Comics continuity, just that of the DCU, which will intersect and sway away and intersect again, etc. with DC Comics. These characters are all myths, and I really enjoy the variations on them, especially when the artists understand the core of what I believe makes a character great and understands their history while offering a new spin. Now, I don't expect his haters to all of a sudden take their foot off the pedal, but I do like him coming out there and saying, I'm not in charge of canon just because I'm co-leading DC Studios and what the DC Universe will be across its multimedia formats. I'm not here pretending like I am the be-all, end-all overlord of DC continuity. That's up for the comics. The comics are the adaptation, but it doesn't make Christopher Reeve's Superman any better than Christian Bale's Batman, any better than Brandon Routh's Superman, any better than Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. They are all different different interpretations from different artists along the way. It's just, you know, in a mainstream world, Zack Snyder goes and makes a $250 million movie and all of a sudden people get upset that it's uh, seen by more people yet isn't as accurate as a comic from the mid-1980s. And that's kind of the thing. We're already at this point now where for all of those people that were so upset with the uh, Snyderverse and its interpretation of a lot of these characters... The defenders or just anyone in a neutral zone was simply saying, hey, just wait. This will all be over and we will get another version of the character. Anyone that didn't like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man was probably crying into their cornflakes in 2002 and 2004 and still in 2007. 
Imagine telling someone in 2007 when Venom came out and them thinking this is the worst adaptation of Spider-Man ever. In 10 years' time, you will have already seen another interpretation of Spider-Man and you will have experienced for his second film a third interpretation of Spider-Man and you're going to be getting a separate universe Venom as well. I think as fans, and I do it as well, but we get too caught up in what's happening to us at the moment, forgetting that if you don't like it, unfortunately, you just have to wait a couple more years. And so to wrap all that up, unfortunately, if you are really into Superman and Lois and that version of Superman and you're not looking forward to David Corrin's sweat, well, you've got 10 more episodes to look forward to sometime over the next eight months. And then things are going to get uh, a little bit different, a little bit darker for you for the next 10 years. If you don't like Hecklin, but you think that the David Corrin sweat thing is going to clear things up, then you've only got another year and then things are going to be real peachy. Let's just calm down a bit. Righto, let's jump back into the DC TV, my journey through what was on air in a particular week as I go through and watch it in real time. We are going back to start things off. Season 2, it's actually the season finale of Season 2 of Batwoman. It's Episode 18, Power. Black Mask unleashes chaos on Gotham and Ryan tries to stop him without the Batsuits. The end of Season 2, it's the end of a lot of things actually. First and foremost, Kate. Kate Kane finally leaves the show and it was kind of what I thought it would be in the end. Kate brought back from Cersei's control and leaves Gotham, having handed over Batwoman duties full-time to Ryan. Now, I liked the added touch of wanting to find Bruce as well as part of her final scene. I had thought, just because of the casting mess and replacing the character that we were at midway between seasons one and two, that her departure would be more about wanting peace or wanting to find herself and escape the darkness of Gotham and maybe it's real... um, claustrophobic grab and hold on her. But wanting to find Bruce, I liked that. I was only thinking in this episode as the city went to shit in the first sort of 10-15 minutes. He is obviously dead or he is obviously captured because why else would he be consistently leaving the city to absolute shit? Plus, it actually gives the entire franchise a great out to never having him appear if they don't want him to or if Warner Brothers don't want them to use him. It's one thing for Batman to be quote-unquote out there somewhere. It's another thing when someone is out looking for him. I think that makes his absence feel a little bit more tangible and believable to us when we really believe in otherwise the Batman character and Bruce Wayne as a person who would never let Gotham get this way. And save for that final scene teasing something for season three, Alice's story could have come to an end as well. I actually thought that it was a nice touch that the culmination of the sister's story was brought on by, again, falling off a bridge together. They'll never go on another bridge again. Now, to be honest, I did think at that moment I did honestly think they were both going to die. We we would still have to get some type of dreamscape vision that we did end up getting, but the deaths and the character arcs would still feel earned because they'd finally come together again in a moment of sacrifice. And after two seasons of Kate trying to save Beth, it actually instead worked out in reverse. You know, I spent so long thinking that it was up to me to bring Beth out of Alice. Turns out Alice brought Kate out of me. That actually worked for me, but not the rest of that line. She's my twin. She'll always be a part of me. But until Alice wants to be Beth, I can't help her. 
I feel like that undid what we saw Alice, Beth, do in that revival scene. She showed more raw emotion in that one scene when Kate seemed to be dead than we have ever seen from her before. And Kate even called her Beth when she woke up. I thought that would be a signal to the audience. Alice is dead. Beth is back. Now, Alice may still have needed to have ended up in jail. Her as a person, as a vessel for whatever different personalities that she has been, would need to go to jail for the crimes committed. But she could have done so as Beth. And maybe it wouldn't have been fair to that side of the character who essentially was killed as a child or has been a child and been captured her basically her entire life. But I think I can also see a version where she was content with paying for what she did, or at least her body did, knowing that she had also saved her sister in the process. And hey, this is comic books, this is comic book TV. We could have written in season three, episode three, that uh, her lawyers got her off and that she had paid for her crimes and she was going to go live out her days in a low-security mental facility. Who knows? One other thing that is definitely over, Jacob Kane. In fact, it turns out he was done two episodes ago when he made that public address via a television set. I mean, I know that is still the actor appearing on TV in front of an audience, but the fact that he wasn't there live in a scene acting opposite someone that had been there from the start of the series, like Alice, the fact that he did that via a television screen on a newscast... That's the last we're going to see of Dugray Scott on this entire show. It was the very day that this episode aired, the story broke that Dugray Scott was leaving the show. I have known that since this episode aired, having not seen the episode, so I wondered how they were going to write him off. Was he going to be killed? Was he going to be brought back and leave Gotham with his daughter, with his daughters, if that was going to be the case? Turns out no. Turns out he's in trouble, and turns out that happened two episodes ago, and I don't think we're going to see him again. By this stage, it seems like after all the shit that that Jacob Kane character went through and how depressed that poor Dugray Scott had to look for the last two years of his life, just looking so tired or drug-affected through this season as well, I just... I feel like it's a real thankless goodbye that he has been given from the show. They've just, I mean, he might have asked to leave and that's probably what's happened, but still to write him out like that, I feel like they did him a little dirty. Speaking of Kate actually leaving, uh, one of the things that she did say was that she was going to stop off and see a friend in National City. Now, currently, as the show's aired, Supergirl has been off for a few weeks and is off for a few weeks more. Do I think that we're going to see Wallace Day's version of Kate Kane appear in one of the final episodes of Supergirl? No, I don't think so. I think in Supergirl, if you are only an audience member of Supergirl and not Batwoman, but you've seen Ruby Rose's version of Batwoman appear in Supergirl and appear in the crossovers, that would be too confusing just for a throwaway cameo in one episode. But the idea that the character herself is going off to see Kara before she leaves, I don't know. I kind of like that. As far as her goodbye was, I think that they also did her the dirty, much like a line that I referenced earlier, a song that was placed over her goodbye scene where she was giving her final kiss to Sophie and saying, you know what, in another universe, maybe we would have made it. In another universe, we were meant to be together and to stay together. But in this one, it just doesn't seem to be uh, the life that uh, fate deems for us. And they both kind of accepted that begrudgingly and gave each other a final kiss and God knows whatever else happened once the camera switched off. But while they were in the middle there of saying all these things that were stopping them from falling in love and stopping them from being together and stopping them from having their happily ever after, or at the very least giving it a good shot, a song played that was singing about love having no limits. Love, love no limits. 
sadly romantic song, definitely, but the idea that it's telling us love has no limits at the end of a scene where they very much said all of the limits they had to their love. Guys, what are you doing? Going back to Alice and Beth, even without the turn that Beth was fully back, they still could have written the Alice story to have finished alongside Kate. Now, I'm not sitting here trying to have the actress written out of the show. I think she's fantastic. She's been one of the stronger points of the entire series over the last two years. But her story might have been done. And I dare say the only reason they write that in, that she's not Beth and completely undoing the first half of the line, like I just mentioned, is so that they can have this next scene appear as almost a post credits out where she is going to be still some type of antagonist and maybe being the joker that the batman would come and visit at arkham asylum we're now going to have allison there that batwoman can come and visit from time to time and get advice from another fellow psycho and not only that she says oh by the way i've done some research your birth mother isn't dead surprise end of show end of series so where does that lead why is that an important enough announcement to lay on the audience at the end of a season finale i don't know but what we do know going into this which maybe the show didn't this is going to be their final season so on top of the bad guys that i already know are going to be in this next season as well as the poison ivy tees that we get right at the end they've got a lot to squeeze into their next batch of episodes before this show wraps up hey speaking of struggling let's talk about legends Episode 8 of Season 6, Stressed Western. The legends go on a normal romp to investigate an alien that has taken up residence in the Old West. Now, first and foremost, this might have the best use I've ever heard of time travel and how it can benefit you in the moment. An A5 Kobe beef. I dry-aged it for 15 years this morning. Yeah. We seriously need to talk about your portal use. Bayrard using time travel to age food. I'm sure they could age alcohol. At the same time, they're also on a ship that can quite literally create anything that they want. So I don't know why they need to be physically altering and aging food, but it sounds like a good idea to me. And look, I feel like I've been giving this show a bit of shit for the last couple of weeks, and it, to be honest, hasn't really been that great. I mean, this show has never been one of my favorites. I've probably criticized this show amongst all of the Arrowverse shows more on average since its inception, but still, the last couple of episodes haven't been great. I feel like this one is actually a bit more of, of an old-school Legends episode. Yes, it's back to a villain of the week type, and you can take or leave it. You could comfortably miss this episode, come back next week, and not actually have missed anything in important. It was really here to bookend the story with Sarah and her coming to terms with her place in the team with her not even newfound powers, but the idea that she is now an alien human hybrid clone thing. It's just a weird story idea for this show in particular. If anything, this show has been about found family and that no matter who you are and what you do, where you come from, you can find a place in the legends no matter what your ability is they aren't scared of you they welcome you into their family so to have an episode where sarah as the captain of this team who's been there for more than everybody else in the entire cast to be questioning whether her team would accept her after they spent the first six weeks of this season looking for her i mean i 
kind of get it, but at the same time, it goes against our expectations of what this show has tried to teach us about what its own characters would do and what they are like. But still, if we have to accept it, it was enough. They have worries at the start. She comes around at the end. The team accept her almost without taking a breath. They just move on like it wasn't really that big of a deal. And in the end, it kind of wasn't an alien in the Old West and we don't change history and we get to throw in some historic figures like Bass Reeves and, hey, David Ramsey gets to play him. John Diggle appears in an old school scene from Legends of Tomorrow. David Ramsey actually directed this episode as well, and I like the idea that he decided to cast himself as an iconic real-life person of Bass Reeves. One thing that did get my attention early on was a scene between Sarah and Ava. I should probably mention, though, I kind of get icked out by the word babe. Not necessarily actually itself, but just its overuse in certain couples. It might be my problem that I don't use it in my relationship and never have in 15 years, but then you get other couples where they will call each other babe and almost exclusively never using that person's actual real name. And I'm like, do people really talk like that? It seems like a movie thing. It seems like a TV thing. This episode, this scene at the beginning took things to a whole new level. I've actually got a babe count for one conversation had between two characters. Um, Oh, and I was a binder and... Actually, I think I turned into a cartoon. It's a new one. Yeah. Babe. Something wrong with the food? Come on. Oh, babe, no, the food, it looks amazing. Uh, I just, I think I'm jet lagged. I get um, it. But what's with the smoothie? That is from Zari. It's for passion, which... Mm. Why are we wasting time talking about gossip and aliens when we could be focusing on you and me? I'm an alien-human hybrid clone. <clears throat> what? So... You are an alien-human hybrid clone who can regenerate. Oh, babe, it sounds so crazy. No, I I mean, yes, obviously, but... Okay, babe, you're Sarah Lance. You're still the same beautiful, tough, and yes, sometimes very surprising woman that I fell in love with. (laughs) And you're here with me. Okay, so that's all that matters. Captains, you're needed on the bridge. An alien pod has been detected. We have to go. That's at the start. Then we get one at the end that promised but didn't deliver. Hey. Hey, babe. Made you something. Thank you. I think my normal appetite is finally starting to come back. Good. But this does look good. (sighs) Well, dig in. Mm. Mm. You know what? I, I think I've been trying way too hard to pretend that things around here could be normal. Babe. But if I was worried about the babe thing in Legends, there was something else that decided to creep its way into the next episode we're going to be talking about, The Flash. No Superman or Lois this week. Instead, we get episode 15 of season 7 of The Flash, Enemy at the Gates. When an army of Godspeeds attack Central City, Barry and Iris must put their family plans on hold and focus on the latest threat to their home. Chillblain is released from prison and claims to be reformed, but Frost has her doubts. I mean, if you just pulled someone aside on the street and read them that paragraph, they wouldn't think that half of those words were English, or at least in a fully formed functioning sentence from the English language. That's, uh, that's a lot. Now, here I was going to talk about that ick that I just mentioned that crept its way in, but... That's the first time I've read that synopsis, and I have to start with it because, uh, sorry, Barry and Iris must put their family plans on hold. Iris was not in this episode. 
I'm not sure why I haven't found any information and one page that promised a lot in some um, <clears throat> research that I did just simply says Candace Patton does not appear in this episode. Thanks very much. That's why I came here. And it's very weird when a show tries to hide the fact that a character is not in a scene where they are supposed to. We get Barry having a dream, and it was a nice return for Nora. He has a vision of the daughter that he once knew that came back from the future, and yet now they're trying to have a family. I mean, let's not bring in science into it and the even slightest variation of their lives at any given moment since he met her to the point where they fall pregnant with her or a child everything could change and that you might not even have a daughter at all and if he does it could be billions upon billions of different versions of a daughter out there still we get a visit from nora in a dream saying everything's going to work out he then takes that as confirmation that he and iris are having a baby except that he says the ick part iris hey uh, this is gonna sound crazy but i think we're pregnant Again, this may be my problem. I don't use babe in my relationship. Do I have a nickname? Yes. Am I going to share it here? No. But uh, it's babe adjacent, but the idea of babe, hey babe, hey babe, hey babe. We went through this in Legends. It doesn't sound good when someone answers the question babe with a response that also includes babe. I am also not of the type that says we are pregnant. I have four kids. Not once, I don't think. And if I did, may my wife strike me down. Did I ever say we are pregnant? We're having a baby. Okay, sure, if we're going to get technical, she is having the baby, but we are going to have that child. We are going to raise that child. I think that's close enough that we can say we are having a baby, but who's pregnant? She's pregnant. I'm sorry. If you don't feel the same way, I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just telling you that's a bit of a nick. So I don't know how I felt like that. Walking straight out of Legends from a babe fest into a guy having a dream with his daughter in it and taking that as confirmation that he is going to have a child soon and calling his wife saying, hey, I think we're pregnant. Yeah, okay. But then the following scene, post the opening credits where it's Barry just running around yelling out a bunch of science mumbo-jumbo to Iris who never once responds. They don't use any type of B-roll footage or some unused audio in the background for Iris who's upstairs getting dressed or sick as Barry likes to say or she could be having a shower, she's eating breakfast, whatever she might be doing. She doesn't even have to appear in the episode but if you threw out one line, one okay, one yes, one by Barry out there behind him running around like an idiot in their apartment that goes a long way to confuse the audience that she was actually there we just didn't need to see her and it wasn't just that episode the amount of phone calls that he made with one-sided conversations we don't ever get any type of reassurance that candace Patton was ever anything to do with this episode so i want to hope that there was a good story behind that I said that Legends was actually a show that I've been giving a lot of shit to, and I feel like The Flash has been the same. I know that it struggled for the first couple of episodes to properly wrap up Season 6, and then has been trying to find its feet, but it hasn't really felt like it's been going anywhere. The uh, Kristen Kramer storyline and her vendetta against metahumans, I mean, that could have went somewhere, but now we're finding out that actually she's just a, a, a misunderstood character, and that in fact she doesn't necessarily hate all metas. She's just been after this one guy the whole time and now joe's actually helping her even though 
for the last two episodes, that has been book-ended information. We are getting nothing on that. There is no meaty story there yet. We are seeing a minute at the start, a minute at the end of the last two, maybe three episodes now. So that's not going to be the overall threat. And anything else that's come along has more or less been about the characters discovering who they are. It's not been about an ongoing threat, which I get that we've got to have some some moments like that where we do get an Allegra trying to figure out who she is and who her cousin is, even even though we had to lose Barry and Ice for an entire episode for that to happen. Chester taking the place of Cisco and how Caitlin and Frost are going to come together and how they can coexist. But when we're looking at the last handful of episodes of this season that struggled at its beginning, we need to start going somewhere. And that's where I think this show, this episode, is actually the best Flash Flash episode than we've had in a long time. Now, we don't need to have speedster villains for the Flash to feel like a Flash episode or for the Flash to even feel like a good show. But there was just something about seeing two Godspeeds show up in one scene, even again with the same Flash problem where there's zero people walking around they are essentially in an empty city not a car not a bike not a person running exercise late at night nothing but we get two god speeds and it was like okay here we go we've got something flashy for a flash episode all of a sudden there's six by the end of it we have 12 and not only the threats but we have all of the characters in some way shape or form doing what they do best Caitlin using her her medical brilliance, her science brilliance to try and better operate on ultraviolet. We have Chester there creating things, coming up with wild ideas. We have the Flash doing speeds to things throughout the episode. Frost even teaming up with um, Chillblane. Hell, Marina Baccarin was back as Gideon when Chester ran into that room, although unfairly, Marina Baccarin doesn't even get a credit in this episode. When Gideon opened her mouth at the end, I'm like, that's Marina Baccarin. I didn't see that in the opening credits. So I watched the end. No mention. I skimmed back to the start. Absolutely no mention. How dare you show so little respect for the great Marina Baccarin? I will not have it. I do like at the end that we get a moment where Team Flash come up with something that does actually, well, okay, not stop, but certainly slow down the god speeds. They then show that they are bigger and stronger than the defense that was thrown against them. And all of a sudden, the Flash is back to an unwinnable situation before the extra god speeds show up. And then they do something which asks more questions than it answers. And it's all left up to next week. But it still feels like it's going to connect the next week. It's going to build. We have that two-word drop, Civil War, hinting at what's coming before the end of the season. Again, I am years behind watching this show, but I've heard something about this was coming, which, to be honest, I had forgotten before this episode started playing. But now that I have seen it and I've heard this reference and the name, drop i know that this is going to tie in and actually connect and be leading somewhere this show has nine seasons we still have another two years left on its run but we have only a handful of episodes left this season and it needs to do something otherwise what were we even here for That'll do us for DC Talk this week on Get Into Geek. We'll be back next week running through some more DC TV and any extra news that drops in the world of DC on the big and little screens. Talking about Superman and Lois, all this talk around why it was cancelled. Maybe they'll want to jump on the back of this and, uh, I don't know, put some positivity out there and actually give us a release date for that fourth and final season, those last 10 episodes that are remaining of that show, and give us something to look forward to around Superman and Lois. And for me... Something to really speed up my watch because I am currently nearing the end of season one. I've got a lot of work to do to catch up and watch this live. Catch you next week for more It's All Part of the Plan. More DC talk right here on Get Into Geek. Enjoy your DC. Get Into Geek.